Chapter Seven of the Sign of Silence by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven: Fatal Fingers. Two days passed. Those fingerprints, impressions left by a woman upon the glass-topped specimen table in Sir Digby's room and on the door handle, were puzzling the police as they puzzled me. They had already been proved not to be those of the porter's wife the lines being lighter and more refined. According to Edwards, after the fingerprints had been photographed, search had been made in the archives at Scotland Yard, but no record could be found that they were those of any person previously convicted. Were they imprints of the hand of my well-beloved? I held my breath each time that black and terrible suspicion filled my mind. I tried to put them aside, but like a nightmare they would recur to me hourly until I felt impelled to endeavor to satisfy myself as to her guilt or her innocence. I loved her, yes, passionately and truly, yet somehow I could not prevent this ever-recurring suspicion to fill my mind. There were so many small points to be elucidated, the jingle of the golden bangles, and especially the perfume, which each time I entered her presence recalled to me all the strange and unaccountable happenings of that fatal night. Again, who was the poor unidentified victim, the pale-faced pretty young woman who had visited Digby clandestinely and gone to her death? Up to the present the police notices circulated throughout the country had failed to establish who she was. Yet if she were a foreigner, as seemed so likely, identification might be extremely difficult. Indeed, she might ever remain a mystery." It was nearly ten o'clock at night when I called at Cromwell Road, for I had excused myself for not coming earlier, having an object in view. I found Frida in the library, sweet and attractive, in a pale blue gown cut slightly décolleté. She and her mother had been out to dinner somewhere in Holland Park, and had only just returned. Mrs. Shand drew an armchair for me to the fire, and we all three sat down to chat in the coziness of the somber little book-lined den. Bain, the old butler, who had known me almost since childhood, placed a tantalus of siphon and glasses near my elbow, and at Frida's invitation I poured myself out a drink and lit a cigarette. "'Come,' I said, "'you will have your usual lemonade,' and at my suggestion her mother ordered Bain to bring a siphon of that harmless beverage. My love reached for one of the glasses whereupon I took one, and with a word of apology declared that it was not quite clean. "'Not clean?' exclaimed Mrs. Shand quickly. "'There are a few smears upon it,' I said, and adding, "'Excuse my handkerchief, it is quite clean.' I took the silk handkerchief I carried with me purposely and polished it with the air of a professional waiter. Both Frida and her mother laughed. "'Really, Mr. Royal, you are full of eccentricities,' declared Mrs. Shand. "'You always remind me of your poor father. He was most particular.' "'One cannot be too careful or guard sufficiently against germs, you know.' I said, handling the clean glass carefully, and pouring out the lemonade from the siphon. Frida took the glass from my hand, and laughing happily across its edge, drank. Her fingers were leaving tell-tale impressions upon its surface. And yet she was unconscious of my duplicity. Ah, yes, I hated myself for my double dealing. And yet so filled was I now by darkness and breathless suspicion that I found myself quite unable to resist an opportunity of establishing proof. I watched her as she, in all innocence, leaned back in the big saddlebag chair holding her glass in her hand, and now and then contemplating it. 
the impressions impressions which could not lie would be the means of exonerating her or of condemning her those golden bangles upon her slim white wrist and that irritating perfume held me entranced what did she know concerning that strange tragedy in harrington gardens what indeed was the secret my chief difficulty was to remain apparently indifferent but to do so was indeed a task i loved her i with all my strength and all my soul yet the black cloud which had fallen upon her was one of impenetrable mystery and as i sat gazing upon her through the haze of my cigarette smoke i fell to wondering just as i had wondered during all those hours which had elapsed since i had sent it that first with a parfait d'amour with which her chiffons seemed impregnated at last she put down her empty glass upon the bookshelf near her several books had been removed leaving a vacant space mrs shand had already risen and bade me good night therefore we were alone so i rose from my chair and bending over her kissed her fondly upon the brow no i would believe her innocent that white hand the soft little hand i held in mine could never have taken a woman's life i refused to believe it and yet did she know more of sir digby kemsley than she had admitted why had she gone to his flat at that hour lurking upon the stairs until he should be alone and no doubt in ignorance that i was his visitor as i bent over her stroking her soft hair with my hand i tried to conjure up the scene which had taken place in sir digby's room the tragedy which had caused my friend to flee and hide himself surely something of a very terrible nature must have happened or my friend impostor or not would have remained faced the music and told the truth i knew digby better than most men the police had declared him to be an impostor nevertheless i still believed in him even though he was now a fugitive edwards had laughed at my faith in the man who was my friend but i felt within me a strong conviction that he was not so black as pig-headed officialdom had painted him the council of seven at scotland yard might be a clever combination of expert brains but they were not infallible as had been proved so many times in the recent annals of london crime frida had not referred to the tragedy and i had not therefore mentioned it my sole object at the moment was to obtain possession of the empty glass and carry it with me from the house but how could i effect this without arousing her suspicion she had risen and stood with her back to the blazing fire her pretty lips parted in a sweet smile we were discussing a play at which she had been on the previous evening a comedy that had taken the town by storm her golden bangles jingled as she moved that same light metallic sound i had heard in the darkness of the staircase at harrington gardens my eager fingers itched to obtain possession of that glass which stood so tantalizingly within a couple of feet of my hand by its means i could establish the truth well teddy my beloved said at last as she glanced at the chiming clock upon the mantelshelf it's past eleven so i suppose i must go to bed mallock is always in a bad temper if i keep her up after eleven i suppose that is only natural i laughed she often waits hours and hours for you that i know yes she sighed but mallock is really a model maid so much better than brain personally i did not like the woman mallock she was a thin-nosed angular person who wore pince-nez and was of a decidedly inquisitive disposition 
but I, of course, had never shown any antagonism towards her. Indeed, I considered it diplomatic to treat her with tact and consideration. She had been made to the oldest daughter of a well-known and popular countess before entering Frida's service, and I could well imagine that her principal topic of conversation in the servants' hall was the superiority of her late mistress, whose service she had left on her marriage to a wealthy peer. "'I'm glad she is an improvement upon rain,' I said for want of something else to say, and, rising, I took her little hand and pressed it to my lips in farewell. When she had kissed me, I said, "'I'll just finish my cigarette, and I can let myself out.' "'Very well, but look in tomorrow, dear, won't you?' she replied as I opened the door for her to pass. "'Better still, I'll ring you up about three o'clock and see what you are doing. Oh, by the way, mother wants to remind you of your promise to dine with us on Wednesday night. I quite forgot. Of course you will. Eight o'clock as usual.' "'Wednesday,' I exclaimed vaguely, recollecting the acceptance of Mrs. Shand's invitation about a week previously. "'What date is that?' "'Why, the fourteenth.' "'The fourteenth,' I echoed. "'Yes, why? Really, you look quite scared, Teddy.' "'What's the matter? Is anything terrible going to happen on that date?' she asked, looking at me with some concern. Uh, "'Going to happen? Why?' I asked, striving to calm myself. "'Oh, well, because you look so horribly pale. When I told you the date you gave quite a jump.' "'A jump? Did I?' I asked, striving to remain calm. "'I didn't know, but really I'm filled with great disappointment. I'm so sorry, but it will be quite impossible for me to dine with you.' "'Another engagement?' she said in a rather irritated tone. "'Going to some people whom you like better than us, of course. You might tell the truth, Teddy.' "'The truth is that I have a prior engagement,' I said, "'one that I cannot break. I have to fulfill faithfully a promise I gave to a very dear friend.' "'Couldn't you do it some other time?' "'No,' I answered, "'only on the evening of the fourteenth. "'Then you can't come to us,' she asked with a pout. "'I'll look in after,' I promised but to dine is entirely out of the question. I saw that she was annoyed, but next moment her lips parted again in a pretty smile, and she said, "'Very well, then. But remember, you will not be later than ten, will you?' "'I promise not to be, dearest,' I answered, and kissing her she ascended to her room. The fourteenth. It was on that evening I had to carry out the promise made to Digby and meet the mysterious lady at the Piccadilly Circus tube station the woman whose initials were E.P.K., and who would wear in her breast a spray of mimosa. I returned to the library, and for a second stood thinking deeply. Would I, by that romantic meeting, be placed in possession of some further fact which might throw light upon the mystery? Ah, would I, I wondered. The empty glass caught my eye, and I was about to cross and secure it when Bain suddenly entered. Seeing me, he drew back quickly, saying, "'I beg pardon, sir. I thought you had gone. Will you take anything more, sir?' "'No, not to-night, Bain,' was my reply. Whereupon the old servant glanced around for the missing glass, and I saw with heart sinking that he placed it upon the tray to carry it back to the servants' quarters. The link which I had been so careful in preparing was already vanishing from my gaze, when of a sudden I said, "'I'll change my mind, Bain.' I wonder if you have a lemon in the house. I'll go to the kitchen and see if Cook has one, sir, replied the old man who, placing down the tray, left to do my bidding. In an instant I sprang forward and seized the empty tumbler, handling it carefully. 
Swiftly I tore a piece off the evening paper, and wrapping it around the glass, placed it in the pocket of my dinner jacket. Then going into the hall, I put on my overcoat and hat, and awaited Bain's return. "'I shan't want that lemon,' I cried to him as he came up from the lower regions. "'Good night, Bain.' and a few moments later I was in a taxi speeding towards Albemarle Street with the evidence I wanted safe in my keeping. That fingerprints remained on the polished surface of the glass I knew full well, the prints of my beloved's fingers. But would they turn out to be the same as the fingers which had rested upon the glass-topped specimen table in Digby's room? Opening the door with my latch-key, I dashed upstairs eager to put my evidence to the proof by means of the finely powdered green chalk I had already secured, the same as that used by the police. But on the threshold of my chambers Haynes met me with a message, a message which caused me to halt breathless and staggered. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com